In my sermon this morning, I want to try to do three things. To speak a little bit about the affirmations that are part of the Lenten season that may not be explicitly talked about in each week, but are part of the sort of underpinning that each of us might use for the purpose of living in a season where self-examination and thoughtfulness and discernment about God's will and purpose for us is at the heart of what we should be doing and what is part of the historic origin of the season of Lent. I then want to say something to you about Abraham because Abraham looms large in this week's readings, both in the reading from Genesis, where Abram becomes Abraham, and where we have Paul speaking about Abraham as a type that gives force and support for his understanding of the mission to the Gentiles and its meaning for God's purposes in the world. And then I want to speak about a sentence that is in today's gospel, fairly well known. To paraphrase it, if anyone would follow me, they must take up their cross and follow me. Or if anyone would be my disciple, they must take up their cross and follow me. And what does it mean to take up your cross and how do we understand that in the Christian faith and life? On Ash Wednesday, we were given three affirmations or predicates for the season that are part of the way we might understand ourselves all the time, but with a particular intensity during the 40 days of Lent. And these themes are repentance, changing the direction in which you look for happiness, reconciliation, the necessity for each of us to find the ways and the means, both personally and corporately, to practice reconciliation and to understand that reconciliation is an external process in relationship, of course, but reconciliation as we seek to mature our spiritual life also has something to do with reconciling the internal conflicts mentally, emotionally, and spiritually that all of us feel. So that means the committee that lives rent-free in your head needs somehow to be brought to bay and that we're able now to function at a higher and better level. So the process of reconciliation is both internal and external. And finally, to understand that throughout this, Clean motives are part of how we live our lives and that we need to do everything in our power to be sufficiently self-aware that in relationship we don't operate with corrupt motives as the default position. Oftentimes we do this not because we wish to be in some way devious or self-serving but because we're afraid and fearful. So keep those things in mind as we move forward in the season of Lent. And let's move to Abram, who becomes Abraham. In the book of Genesis, today we have the first of the introductions or a covenant that establishes itself between God and Abraham. 
And Abraham first is not asked to do much. He's asked just to walk before God. In other words, to be conscious that on a daily basis and as he moves with his people, that he understands himself to be in God's presence and in some way to have faith that this presence is going to lead him and his people into ways and means that are consistent with what Abraham would have called El Shaddai, which means the Lord Almighty, and that we are to do this, or he is to do this, as part of his faithfulness. Just so you know this, Abram, in Hebrew, means exalted ancestor. And Abraham means ancestor of many nations, or the ancestor of a multitude. And if you read it in the original language, you'll see that what the writers are doing is creating a word play. So in terms of how it sounds and so forth to, the, to someone hearing it, they could tell that that's what is going on. The Old Testament in the Hebrew language is replete with puns, word plays, all kinds of things as, as you read it. It's referred to, by the way, in Genesis today that Abram's, Abraham's wife is Sarai and she becomes Sarah. I wasn't able to find anywhere in the ponies or any of the uh, Hebrew dictionaries uh, whether uh, this means uh, exalted ancestor female and ancestor of a multitude female when it was Sarah. So I don't, we don't quite know what that is except that it's in the text for a purpose and that is to say that Sarah's role in the divine economy is significant. But another example of a word play would be, uh, this is said to Abraham in today's reading, Abraham's 90. And his wife, Sarai, or Sarah, is 75. And God says to Abraham that she's going to have a baby. She's going to have a male heir. Now, when this is told to Sarah, subsequently in Genesis, Sarah's response is, <laughs> she laughed, it says. Now, the three angels who came to visit them and to give this news to Sarah, I, I don't know whether I would want, would want to be there or what I would do when she laughs in front of these three angels that are like persons because one of them turns to her and says, why are you laughing? Well, when the baby's born, the baby's name is Isaac. He laughed. God laughed. That's what the name means in Hebrew. So people would read that and say, gee, that's pretty clever, you know. <laughs> Abraham walked by faith. And he would not use that word. He would have used a word like immuna, which means trust. So he trusted that God would provide for him and his people and that God would be faithful and therefore he must be faithful. Abram, Abraham responds to the divine initiative. 
He cooperates with God's purposes for him. And it is important to know that 50% of the world's population practice a faith tradition that believes that Abraham is their father. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all believe that Abraham is father and call Abraham father. And it is in fact that belief that becomes the starting point often for interreligious conversation and dialogue. So being part of an Abrahamic religion is no small thing. He looms large in our three great traditions. Now, why this is set up this way in Genesis is that in the reading today from Romans, which is more, it's, thank God it's short enough, but it often is part of Paul's fairly tightly described understanding of his role and mission and his explanation to the Roman Christians about the nature of things and how God is dealing with the world and what our response ought to be. And he introduces Abraham into this conversation and speaks about the faith of Abraham that was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now here's the biblical device that has been, done, has been uh, exercised today. In the reading from Genesis, Abram, now Abraham agrees to walk by faith in front of God. He is then told that he is going to be the father of many nations and that it is, it is a good and important thing. They've cut out several verses in the middle where they're told, where Abraham is told that he now needs to do some things to demonstrate his faithfulness. And one of them is that all males got to be circumcised. So we don't read that today. That's taken out. Okay? And the reason, I think, is because Paul believes and uses as a rationale for his ministry to the Gentile community that Abram initially walked by faith and he wasn't, which is initially circumcised, and there was a gap between his not being circumcised and then his being circumcised. And Paul is using that to justify to his Jewish Christian confreres that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. Here's the problem with this text in the inside baseball Christianity inter-Christian dialogue. A lot of conservative evangelical Christians don't say it these days because it's very controversial, but they believe in something that's called supersessionism, which means we had Judaism, now we have Christianity, we've had this evolutionary process, and Judaism is really not necessary anymore. It's, it's sort of odd that it has continued. And therefore, the danger of believing that has produced an enormous amount of horror uh, not the least of which has been in the last century or so. Here's what Paul really means about this. He means that he is a faithful Jew. 
He practices the law. He has been circumcised. He believes that the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised because God has announced in Jesus Christ that it is not necessary for them to be part of God's invitation to come into his saving embrace. But he says there is the Jews that this message is for and now it is also for the Gentiles. Not now that it's for the Gentiles, it's not for the Jews. The reason he's saying this is because some of his Jewish confreres said, look Paul, you've got to go into, right to the Roman Christians and to all these other churches you founded and you have to say to them, now that you have accepted the mighty works of Jesus Christ, his messiahship, his saving work, you need to start to keep the Jewish law. And the centerpiece of this is that all males must be circumcised. You and I are probably wondering why do we have to get down to that clinical level as a centerpiece of anybody's religion, you know. It seems to be a bit odd, doesn't it? I hate to tell you this, about 35 years ago I read there was a cartoon in Playboy magazine of Abraham standing on a rise in the Canaanite desert looking up to heaven saying, you want me to do what? <laughs> But then it was big. It had to be addressed. It was a major question. And Paul's real analysis of this is, for those who are in the covenanted community and call themselves Jews and accept the necessity to practice the law, you got to do it. Do it. But those who have never done that and who are part of the Gentile community don't have to do it and we're all one in Christ. That's what it means. And Abraham is reckoned righteous by his trust in God's purposes. And so Gentiles can you be if you trust in God's purposes. And be serious about what it is you're going to do. We have no evidence that Paul ever stopped being a pious Jew except in his missionary work where he believed that in the communities that were Gentile and did not keep the law, he sat lightly on those things in his own life with them in community. But we have no evidence that outside of that, or implicit in some of what he says, that he ever stopped doing this. And remember, he believes, not that he was doing this because... He wanted to make sure that he was righteous or to stay righteous. He did it because he loved God. Not to stay in, but as an act of thanksgiving for loving God. For God's work in his life. So he believes, not like Martin Luther who was continuously worried and nervous, that he is blameless before God. He ha if God were to call him now to the throne of judgment, Paul would say, I have nothing to fear. I believe myself absolutely to be righteous before God. 
I have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. So by virtue of this community of which I'm a part, I'm in. What I'm saying is the Gentiles don't have to do all those things because God says so. You know, the season of Lent originally started as the most intensive preparation for adults who were going to be baptized to be baptized on Easter. And then it expanded slightly for each Christian person to use the season to reflect on their baptismal promises and to reconnect with the promises of God and to understand that their responsibility to do this was not merely internal and individualistic but was corporate and relational and that they had a part to play in making it a world where it is easier for people to be good. And as we move towards the medieval period, Lent becomes a season where we engage in personal pious practices in order to shriv ourselves of the sins that we believe that we have committed. And we received biblical support for this because most Western Christians, if they read the Bible, read the Vulgate Bible, which was in Latin. And St. Jerome, when he made the Latin translation in the 5th or 6th century A.D., translated from the Greek New Testament the word metanoiete, repent, turn around and look at your life in a new way, change the direction you're looking for happiness. He translated that Greek word into penitentium agite, do penance. Do you understand the difference? It means you've got to somehow take on stuff in order to do this. And it gradually now becomes, with biblical support in that translation, a process whereby all of us are to engage in hair-raising pious practices. This does not mean that we ought not to engage in pious practices, nor that we ought to do penance for the things legitimately that we know we need to. That is not, this is not an either-or choice. But it is important for us to understand that that became, by the Middle Ages, by the dawn of the Magisterial Reformation, the absolute focus of the spiritual life. That this is what we were to be engaged with. A continuous process of being sorry and worrying about, in some way, having to please a God who was, as it says in our own tradition, justly angry. So you can see that Christianity in some of its forms have given many of us real worries. And it is, a, it is a good thing that the renewal in the church's life, particularly in its worship over the last 35 or 40 years, has sought to recover some of the primitive church's understanding of the nature of repentance, its corporate side, and to continuously affirm for each of us when we do need to do some serious soul-searching and to be sorry for some of the things that we do, we do that in the midst of the knowledge that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And that that is the starting point for all serious 
discernment and self-reflection. Abraham was somebody who walked initially trustfully so that he would know God's purposes for him. And Paul wishes to give support to that by saying he was sort of the, the original guy who was somebody who walked through by faith and trust. So faith and trust are important this week. Now we have Jesus. There's a whole lot of stuff in this gospel I'm not going to preach about because it is very complex. And it's all about his messiahship and Peter getting upset because Jesus is saying these things about what's going to happen to him. And the next thing we go, Peter, the most prominent of the apostles, zooms to Satan very quickly, right? So let's not talk about that today, but talk about taking up your cross and following Christ. Those of you who may be in the helping profession, certainly I have been as a pastor for many years and uh, in my own family and so on. I know people who have borne their crosses sometimes a little more conspicuously than we would like. It's like somebody said, you know, you've heard that it's a sort of line, um, oh yeah, my Aunt Evelyn, she's been enjoying poor health for the last ten years. So sometimes people believe that we look at the bearing of our crosses in the sense of burden and suffering and that that's how we understand that. And, you know, the Savior suffered on the cross, so we understand that we participate in that suffering by virtue of bearing our own sufferings and adversity. And that's not a completely wacko way to look at this. But I think sometimes we need to think a little more fully and deeply about the nature of what these crosses might be. Dean David Bird of of Trinity Cathedral in San Jose said in a sermon I heard him preach a couple of years ago when I was on vacation, remember, wherever you go, you bring yourself with you. Maybe that's the cross. (laughs) You know? I think to myself on a regular basis that uh, sometimes I'm the biggest obstacle in the midst of breaking open a thing and getting to some solution or some sort of clarity about what it is that ought to go on. So Father Thomas Keating may be right when he says that the cross may be the false self-system. Focusing on the three energy centers, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. All of these issues are natural aspects of human life, and they have a side that can be either neutral or positive, and all of them can create Uh, circumstances where we operate out of selfishness, self-centered fear, and corrupt motive. And so those places may be, in fact, where we carry a big cross. Now, Jesus invites his disciples to follow him on the way and to carry their crosses as they go. And we believe that this journey is 
an internal spiritual, mental, and emotional journey. And as each of us mature in the spirit, this cross just may get lighter. This false self may become a little less prominent in the way in which we relate to other people. We may begin to understand that it is important for us to lay down some crosses that we're carrying that we don't need to. You know, there's some people, it may surprise you, who enjoy vicarious suffering. And they think that it, they justify it because they believe that it's godly. But in fact, we, don't, we do believe that there is some suffering that isn't redemptive. And all of the great writers on the spiritual life in our tradition caution against understanding that that's what you ought to do, to take on suffering vicariously or to be overweening with regard to the heaviness and the bigness of your own cross. So this section in the Gospel affords me the opportunity to say maybe as we go through the season of Lent and talk more and more about the cross, we put the cross in perspective. The truth of the matter is that while many people find this deeply offensive or a non-starter, the cross must be faced. It is part of our tradition. It is part of how we understand God's redemptive work. And in the therapeutic culture in which you and I live and have lived for over 45 years, we believe that in some ways we need to, we know that the way we come to some healing and wholeness is not under the cross, around the cross, or over the cross, but through it. And through it may be clarity about what that cross is and the false self. So this week, think about trust. I've said this to you before. My default position in, in relationship is that we are all people of goodwill and that we mean what we say. I wish that I could tell you that I'm not often bitterly disappointed and crushed even by the knowledge that uh, that's not true or that some people operate with corrupt motives. But if there's anybody in this world that ought to be idealistic about human relationships, it's Christian people. And so we believe that we're all people of goodwill and that we mean what we say. So like Abraham, work on trust. Understand that God's way with the world is such that we are not continuously presented with a series of either-or choices, but with understanding the continuity of God's grace and work through time. And that what Paul is talking about in Romans is the evolutionary processes where the people of God come to understand that they can honor various traditions and see God's saving work in them. And finally, think a little bit more about the false self-system and see if you can make any progress in that territory. Amen.